Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over there. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 quite a bit here today. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I just want to start with a question. Maybe you've asked this question before. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? It's kind of this open-ended question that maybe you've asked, like you were at a restaurant and like there was a waiter or a waitress that just got pretty bad service and you're like, excuse me, can I speak to your manager? Uh, who's in charge here? You've been on the phone with your insurance company or somebody and you keep pushing zero, 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 speak to an operator, speak to a human, and you finally get to someone who's like, uh, who's in charge here? Can I speak to your supervisor? Is that a possibility? Who's in charge here? It's easy to feel like no one's in charge in this world that we live in. It's easy to feel like maybe someone else should be in charge. Maybe it's been you. I've been guilty of like, maybe I shouldn't have been in charge of that. For the past 18 years, I have been uh, leading a week of summer camp at Roanoke Christian Camp up in Washington, North Carolina. Uh, every summer, I have a volunteer staff of about 25 volunteers. It's an awesome experience, and I've been doing it for a really long time, and I really love it. Uh, for years now, I've been doing the high school session. Before that, I spent about seven years doing the middle school session. But for my first two or three years, I was in charge of the little kids, uh, at least some of the littlest kids elementary age kids. So if you've ever spent a whole week at summer camp with elementary age kids, you know that that's a, that's a special thing to do in itself. Well, uh, in my very first year, I may have made a slight miscalculation and judgment in, air, in leadership. Uh, so it's my very first year and um, the way that it works is you have volunteer staff and some of my staff were like 17, 18, 19 years old because they were younger campers and so the staff was a little bit younger and they, they came to me near the end of the week and they said, hey Chris, these kids have been really good this week and they've been begging us every night, can we please have a pillow fight? Can we please have a pillow fight? So we were thinking since it's the last night of camp, maybe we could just, after we put them down in bed, we can come into the rooms and we can surprise them and say, hey guys, we're going to go out behind the dorm and have a pillow fight. And I heard that and I was like... Yeah, that sounds like that actually sounds like a lot of fun. What could possibly go wrong? So I said, yeah, thumbs up. I approve that. Uh, I now know because I have older kids of my own now. This was many years ago that my first mistake was allowing those guys to take those kids out of their beds after dark. Like elementary age kids, once they get in bed, they need to stay in bed. Period. Okay. If you're missing out on that as a parent. I need to tell you, that's what they need to do. Uh, that was probably my first mistake, but it wasn't my last mistake. Probably my second mistake was not clarifying to these 17, 18, 19 year olds, hey, when you do this pillow fight, keep it under control. Who's in charge here? Well, uh, see what happened was the kids went to bed, the counselors went and got them out of bed. And then, uh, I don't know how long it was. I was off doing something else. I had some other responsibility. One of the counselors came running to me, Chris, 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 something happened. We need you to come here. Come here quick. You need to take care of something. I'm like, what happened? Come here, come here. And they're all upset. And so I, I run back to the dorm. This was just the boys' dorm, by the way. It's always the boys. I go back behind the boys' dorm and I find, man, it was like I walked into 
a scene of people who were like reenacting the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, just bodies. There were just bodies on the ground, and there was like whimpering and crying. There was like pillow fluff just floating in the air, and I was like, what happened here? And there's this one kid, and they're like, you know, slapping his face, we're like, we, we hit him too hard. And, what happened was these dummy volunteers, they go through, they're, they're big strapping guys, high school and young college age guys, and they go through with their pillow like a, like a weed eater, and they're just whack, 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 just taking these kids out, just teeing off on these little elementary kids' heads, and they had just knocked these kids out, hurt some of them, and the one that they called me back to check on was like almost unconscious, and I'm like, oh my goodness, who's in charge here? It was me, it was supposed to be me, so... Long story short, I, I, we, we got with this kid, we, 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 we woke him up, we called his dad, he got taken to urgent care, turns out he had a concussion, that was my first year as a dean of a week at summer camp, it was almost my last year, mistakes were made, lessons were learned, oh my goodness, who's in charge here, the reason I start with this question is because I feel like we're doing a lot of talking these days about authority and power and who's in charge here most specifically because this coming Tuesday is election day and whether you have already voted or I hope you will vote on Tuesday like there's just a lot going on with this election and there's a lot of talk about who should be in charge of what and who should be doing what and who should have done what and who what what I would do if I was in charge and so regardless about how you feel about the election you might be all about it uh, it might be causing you a lot of stress you might be at a point where you're like I'm over it I just don't want to hear it anymore you might just be excited that on Tuesday no more junk mail, no more unsolicited, you know, blast, text, text blasts and email. Like, you're just glad that that part's going to be it. Whatever the case, something's going to happen on Tuesday, okay? And some people are going to have new jobs and some people are going to keep their old jobs and there's going to be authority and power going around. But, but today I'm not here to talk about the election. I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm here to talk about the power and the authority of the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And when it comes to asking the question, who's in charge here? I want us to learn to proclaim the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Who's in charge here? To get there, I want to introduce you to uh, somebody from the Bible named Isaiah. You might not have read much of Isaiah. It's a hefty book. It's actually, I think, the thickest book in the Bible. I do recommend that you check it out and read it. Take your time. Get some commentaries and read along. There's lots to understand about the book of Isaiah that I can't even get into today. Uh, but it's in the Old Testament of the Bible. I already told you you should turn over to chapter 40. But if you haven't already, grab your Bible, flip over there, or scroll down. Isaiah chapter 40. Let me tell you about this guy. Isaiah was a prophet living in the nation of Israel uh, during uh, the, the time of several different kings, most, uh, most notably probably King Hezekiah, who we're going to find out was a stud. I really like Hezekiah. Uh, side note here, Hezekiah is probably my favorite biblical character. Like of all of them in the whole Bible, outside of Jesus, Hezekiah is top for me. So if you ever need to answer that trivia question, now you know the answer. Uh, but th they lived in a time when the, the empire, the Assyrian empire, was just large and in charge. Okay, they were knocking down everybody like those kids with pillows. Um, and they, they were just kicking butt and taking names and being in charge. And we're going to talk a little bit about them later. And during this time, the Assyrian army actually had the nation of Israel under siege. You know, they were, nothing was going in, nothing was coming out. Very effective way of taking over a city. You just basically would shut them down until they starve or give up. And the Jews inside the city walls were actually going to the king Hezekiah and saying, hey, we should surrender. We should surrender. We should give up. 
They had already begun to compromise in their faith, actually for many generations. Hezekiah's dad was one of the worst. They were already worshiping some of the Assyrian gods that we'll talk about in just a minute. And they had already pretty much given up on the plan that was God's kingdom and the nation of Israel. And they wanted to give up. Well, spoiler alert, God's actually going to do something pretty amazing. He's going to deliver the nation of Israel and and just blow the Assyrians' minds. We'll get to that in just a second. But after that, after the siege, after God wins the battle, Isaiah writes these words that we find in Isaiah chapter 40. And I've already read some of them to you this morning, but I want to back up a minute because as the dust clears and as this whole situation is over, Isaiah is going to say some things about our God that I think and I hope today will give you some peace and some, some empowerment to know who our God is. I'm going to draw out of it four attributes of God, qualities of God, that by knowing these four qualities, we can be so assured of His goodness, His greatness, and His sovereignty. Who's in charge here? Let's just kick it off, uh, starting at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. This is how he starts. He says, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this is being written just after the siege, just after the battle with the Assyrians, and God showing up and doing something incredible. And the first words out of God's mouth through the prophet Isaiah were, Comfort. Comfort my people. See, for generations, the nation of Israel had turned their back on God. But thanks to King Hezekiah, they were back on track with God. And so God was like cool with the Israelites at this time. And he says, comfort, comfort. The, the translation of, of this word comfort is good, but another understanding of it is like this. Take a breath. Take a breath, my people. We had a, a tradition before COVID for the last seven years at Venture Church uh, with our volunteer team every week. After we got done setting up at the church, we would all come together for what we, what we call the backstage service. It was just kind of a miniature church service where we share communion and we pray together. We read some scripture. Uh, one of my favorite parts about our church has been our backstage service. Uh, and the thing that we would do every week, right before we got started, you guys at home, you know what we would do. What would we do? We would take a deep breath. And so actually, I want to I do that right now. Let's do it together. Join me. We need this. Take a deep breath. And let it out. Comfort. Comfort, my people. It's that feeling you get when the blue lights come on in your rearview mirror and you think you're about to get pulled for speeding, but you're not sure if you were even speeding. What was I doing? And then the cop drives right past you because he was actually going to another accident or something. And it wasn't you. (sighs) Comfort. Comfort, my people. 2020 has been crazy. COVID-19, the election, whatever has been going on. It's been crazy. We've talked about it over and over again. But God wants us to know comfort. Comfort my people. The first thing I want us to learn about our God, it comes from this idea that comes from comfort and, and, and what we, how we can receive that comfort, okay? And I want to give it to you first and then we're going to read it. There's four things. These are the four attributes we're going to get from, from this passage. Number one, that our God is a God of holiness. Our God is a goal of holiness. How can we find that comfort that God offers? Understanding that God is a God of holiness. Holiness means to be set apart. It's, it's an otherness. It's not, you're not common. You're holy. And so we think about holiness in terms of God's spiritual purity and, and lack of sin and all that. And that's all true. But it's more like 
when someone's never seen the ocean before and they walk out to the ocean for the first time and they're like, whoa, it's so big. And it's, or you've seen the Grand Canyon for the first time. It's this, that's kind of like the idea of holiness. It's just otherly. It's not common. And so Isaiah gives us this picture of God's holiness and what it means for us to prepare for him in verse 4 of Isaiah 40. He says, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and every hill made low. The, ground, the rough ground shall be become level. The rugged place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, how does this teach us about God's holiness? Because um, when you think about God's holiness, again, if you've heard about holiness before, you're thinking about like his lack of sin and his purity and things like that. How does this tell us about holiness? Well, this, this is a verse that describes, first of all, you might recognize the verse. It's a verse that is used to describe John the Baptist. Uh, it's a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for Jesus. And so it was actually became a prophecy that foretold John's role of making way for Jesus. Again, his holiness. But in Isaiah's context, he wasn't immediately talking about John. He was talking about God and, and what's happening with, uh, with God's presence and his holiness. And he's saying, if you want to have God in your life, you've got to make room for him. Make way for him. Make level uh, the bumpy places. Bring down the mountains. Fill in the valleys. Pave the road. Roll out the red carpet. Make room for him. Like, you wouldn't do all that for just some common person. And think about like when you invite somebody special over to your house for dinner, uh, or if, especially like a dignitary or celebrity or someone was going to come over, what would you do? Well, you would like, you would clean things that you didn't normally clean, and you would like make a meal that you didn't normally make, and you would do all this stuff. Why? Because you're making room for them. You're, 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 you're making room, you're making a special effort to show them how important they are. And we're going to talk more about that later in the, in the third attribute we get from this. But man, God's holiness. And you've got to make room We can't just hold on to who we are and also have room for God in our life any more than the Israelites could hold on to the lifestyle that they were living before King Hezekiah came in and tried to set things straight and also worship God. Because in Isaiah's time, there there was this power struggle in the people's hearts. They were worshiping the gods of the Assyrians, specifically Baal and Moloch and Asherah. And I could tell stories about all three of them, but basically they were all demonic forces that had crazy worships. For example, the god Moloch would require uh, the sacrifice of children and infants. In fact, Hezekiah's very own brother had been sacrificed by his dad to the god Moloch. He was a god of war, and they would kill children. It was hideous. Google it. It's, it's, it's terrible. And he's like, listen, you, you, Israel, you need to make way for God in your life. You need to clean up your habits. You need to clean up your lifestyle. So when King Hezekiah comes to power, what does he do? Well, he kicks out the prophets of these, uh, of these uh, false gods and he cleans out their temples. And some of their prophets were actually serving as priests in God's temple, which is, if you only understand how terrible that was, he took them out of place. I think there's a lesson for, this, for us in this. Like, like, we've got a lot that we could complain about in this world and a lot of hard things and like the things that we're seeking comfort comfort from hashtag 2020 COVID-19 whether it's politics or, or, or racism or the economy like all of these things and I feel like what we can learn from this is like if you if you want God in your life if you want him to intervene in all these crazy things make room for him because he's holy. He is not common. He's not just moving in just like a buddy to come in and make things happy and fun. No, 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 no. God is 
He's a holy God. It's the first quality we learn about our God from this passage. Uh, and, and that quality alone can bring us comfort. It, it can also bring us a little bit of fear because it's like, wait, I don't, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. We'll get to that. Don't worry. But the first thing we need to know about God from this passage is His holiness. The second thing we learn is about the superiority of God. So God's holiness and that God is a God of superiority. And I don't know how else to better say this other than to say God, He's big. <laughs> like, duh, of course He's big. But like, He is huge. Nothing compares to God's superiority. Uh, and in another place in verses uh, 6 through 8, I'm going to kind of give the Chris's revised standard of this verse from chapter 40. But he basically says, like, you know what? People are like grass of the field and our faithfulness is like flowers in a field and that God is so powerful. He's so superior, so supreme that he could just whoosh, blow us down and blow the petals off of our flowers. And, we, and it's nothing. We are nothing compared to the power and the superiority of our God. Dr. James Smith is a theologian and a scholar, and uh, he has an Old Testament commentary that probably puts it a little bit better. He says it like this. He says, the primary aim of this chapter is to demonstrate that Israel's God is superior to anything else that they might be prone to worship. Isaiah wants them to know, like, listen, God's superiority above anything else in this world is important for you to recognize. It's important for you to understand. So listen to the the metaphors that Isaiah uses to kind of try to outline this. I talked about the grass and the field and the flowers. But in verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hands? Think about the ocean we just talked about. Imagine God just holding it all. Just holding it all. Atlantic, Pacific, Indian Ocean. There it is, wiggling around. The deepest parts are just barely at the palm of my hand. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of, his, hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked out the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in baskets? Or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Like, this is all metaphor. God has no need for hands or baskets or scales. But he's just trying to put a picture in our mind of how magnanimous God is. He's huge. Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord? as his counselor. Verse 14, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him a path of understanding? Surely, listen to this, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dusts on the scales. He weighs islands as if they were dust. Like, just the small, there are over 7 billion people on this planet. And to think that to God, it's like just a just a little pile of sand in a bucket. And we think so much of ourselves. We think so much of our, our nations and our powers. And he's like, look, compared to God, we're nothing. God is superior. So God is holy. God is superior. And as such, we get to our third thing that we note. What should our response to such superiority be? Well, what is our response when we see other things that are awesome in our life? When we meet a celebrity or we hear uh, about a famous person coming to town, what do we do? We drop everything and we make it really important to ourselves, don't we? There's a word for that. The, the word that we use in uh, religious circles is worship. I mean, worship is simply the act of assigning worth to something and then showing that worth by our actions. It's, it's worship. God is holy and God is superior and as such, He is deserving of our worship. So you go back to verse 16 and Isaiah lays it out in a way that if you just read it, you're like, I don't know if I really understand that because in modern day, it doesn't really add up for us. But back in their day, there was this forest called, uh, a place called Lebanon. And the trees of the forest of Lebanon were like 
I mean, they were something to behold. And so picture the biggest trees, the giant sequoias or the giant red redwoods and all these giant trees. Picture that. But when people talked about the trees of Lebanon, they actually, it was like a metaphor to talk about the most grandiose thing you could have because they were sought after for timbers to build great palaces and huge ships and things like that. And this is what Isaiah says about God's desire and need for worship and, and his deservingness of worship. He says in verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. All those huge trees, you couldn't even build an altar sufficient to worship our God. Out of all those amazing trees, it says, nor are its animals enough for burnt offerings, which was the common way the Jews would worship. It says, before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Like I said, I'm all about patriotism and nations feeling excited about, you know, their power and stuff. But compared to God's power, our military and our economy and our influence on this world is nothing. He is supreme. He is holy. And as such, he is deserving of our worship, we should assign him worth and our actions should reflect that. Remember, the first people to have heard this in Isaiah's context would be the same people who had just been on lockdown, you can relate to that, in a city because they were under siege by the Assyrians. If any nation had claim to power, it was the Assyrians. Their method for taking over a city was to go in and basically mow it down with, with spears and swords and then fire. They'd burn the whole thing down. They'd bring all the leaders out. They would chop their heads off and put them up on sticks outside the city just to let everybody else know, hey, listen, Assyria was here and we took over and you're nothing compared to us. Us. And if there's anything the nation of Israel needed to hear, it was about the power of their God. Because I told you that God did something amazing to deliver them from the Assyrians. Can I tell you about it now? I mean, you got to go read it. It's in 2 Kings chapter 18. Okay, you can go read it and you can read the whole story and just be like, what? And this is a real story because we have some other historical evidence to back it up. But basically, here's what happened. The Assyrians had been camped out around Jerusalem for a really long time. And then one night, God calls an army of angels to come down into the tents of the Assyrians and basically kill like... It says uh, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, the angels of the Lord, come and kill while they're sleeping. Okay, so the rest of the Assyrian army wakes up the next morning and they're like compatriots are down next to them. They're dead. They're like, what happened? The God of the Israelites came through and took care of us. And they freaked out and they packed up and they left. And the reason that I'm so confident in this is because uh, this is one of those places where biblical history and other historical sources line up. And, and you can Google this as well. There are, uh, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria at this time. And he kept very good annals of all the things that he did. And one thing he did as he did his conquest was he would talk about the city. And he would say, we had this city, we had them under siege, and then we captured them. And we had this city under siege, and then we captured them. And then it gets to Jerusalem and it says, we had Jerusalem under siege, and then we left. That's the story we get about Jerusalem. He doesn't go on and say, hey, there was this freak accident and 185,000 of our soldiers disappeared and died. Like he doesn't say that, but God's word fills in the blanks for us. We were created to worship. We have a God who is superior and he is holy. And he wants to go to bat for us. And he is deserving of worship. And we were created to worship. You can find this in our own lives. I mean, people all over the world are finding reason to have purpose. Like they're constantly seeking. And that's why all around the world, there's world religions on top of world religions. And every culture is trying to find a way to express this, this, this desire for worship. We were designed to worship and God is deserving of worship. And so when those things add up, man, it's a perfect storm of worship, assigning worth and living it out with our actions.
because we want to bow down to something greater. Isaiah's advice is that we bow down to God Almighty, superior, holy, supreme, and sovereign, God Almighty. Let's jump ahead to verse 25 because we got to get a picture of, of the grandioseness of God. He says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them forth each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. God is holy, and God is superior, and God is deserving of our worth. And we could stop there. But it brings me to a point where I think about what I know about Jesus, and I know about Christianity, and I ask myself, how does this amazing or why does this amazing, superior, all-powerful God, why would He care about me? Why? Because it's one thing to think about the powers of the you know, nations and these kings and these armies and be like, yeah, God, God can go toe-to-toe with them. He can beat them all. But the message of the Bible is not that God just comes to blow us over like grass in the field. Instead, and it's tucked away in here. I actually skipped over it on purpose a minute ago because I want to go back to it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. There's this little picture. As we're talking about the might of God, it says, verse 11, He gathers the lambs in His arms and He carries them close to His heart. And He gently leads those that have young. Like it flies by so quickly that it's easy to miss, but isn't it amazing that this mighty supreme God this holy, righteous God, this deserving of worship, has the time for the lambs. Jesus is called the good shepherd. And over and over, the people of God are called sheep. And this is picture there. The fourth quality of God, when we've got the God is holy, we've got the God is superior, we've got that God is deserving of our worship. But the fourth quality of God that blows my mind in this passage is that God is a God of love. He's a God of love. John 3.16, probably the most famous passage in the Bible, says that for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So who's in charge here? God, who is holy, who is supreme, who is deserving of our worship, and who is full of love, He is in charge here. And it's up to each one of us to decide what that means in our own lives. But let me just tell you as we wrap up today, like this isn't a lesson on like, hey, here's three easy tricks to have a better marriage or here's a great way to feel better about your faith or like our last series, like how to build hope in the world. And all those things could happen from this. But this is just a lesson about the amazingness of God. And it's up to each of us to decide how it impacts our life. Will we make room for Him? Will we worship Him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint comfort 
comfort my people. Let's pray.